Amen. Good morning, church. Right. <laughs> Happy Sunday, everybody. Uh, my name is Brandon. I'm one of the pastors here, primarily working with youth and families, and occasionally they let me get up here, and uh, uh, so good luck this morning. Um, how many of you guys were just like, it was so good for your soul that the sun came out yesterday? <laughs> Hallelujah, right? I... Um, my sister is having a baby, so she had a baby shower yesterday, so it was a perfect day for that. Uh, but then my brother-in-law was like, hey, do you want to go golfing with me and a couple of my friends? And I was like, I've never been golfing before. That sounds cool. All right, sure. So, <laughs> so their very first time, like, I've been to Top Golf. okay? Has anybody been to Top Golf? okay? It's pretty fun. It's cool, you know? I, that's how many times I've swung a golf club in my life, and then I went... And we played a little nine-hole course in Salem, and it was fun, and I didn't lose my salvation. So, so I'm feeling good about that. Um, it was good. The, the sun was really good for my soul yesterday. Um, I am a, the kind of person who the weather, like, I think really affects me. Uh, and so when the sun comes out, I become a whole new human being. So I'm thankful for that, and I'm going to hope that it just keeps coming, right? Um, all right, so we are starting a new series for the next four weeks here at OCEC, and we are calling it Freedom. And what we're doing for the next four weeks is we're going to take a look at four of sort of the big attributes of God, some of the things that are true about him and about his character, and we're going to take a look at each of those elements of who God is, and we're going to discuss how it is that when we trust in that thing, when we actually believe and live as if it's true that each one of these aspects of God is real, it brings a certain amount of freedom into our life in a certain area. So we're going to be talking about different things through the next four weeks. And this week, uh, we're talking about the greatness of God, how God is great. And not just great in the sense of like, I, you know, I'm, I'm an American, so when I say, well, that's great, you know, uh, that's, that's so great, awesome. I'm not saying in the sense of like, well, that's good or enjoyable or whatever. I'm saying it in the sense of great as in big, immense, powerful, majestic, all these different kinds of things that we know are to be true about God and that the, the Bible talks about throughout the, the story of scripture about how great God is. And when we trust and believe in God's greatness, we recognize that we are not God. And that brings freedom into our lives. So we're going to be taking a look uh, at Psalm chapter 8 this week. So if you have your Bible with you, go ahead and open it up to Psalm chapter 8. We're going to be camping out there for most of our morning today. Um. And we're going to be looking at Psalm 8, and I just want to give us a quick little intro to the book of Psalms before we kind of dive in so that we kind of wrap our head around what exactly we're looking at here. Uh, many of you probably are aware of this, but the Psalms are a collection of ancient Hebrew poetry. So the Psalms were composed over a, a good length of time by various different authors. Uh, one of those authors that we're aware of that was probably the most famous of them is King David, right? But there are other authors who wrote psalms in Hebrew and praises to God in uh, different kinds of elements of human experience, and we compiled them together, and they're in a book that we now call the Psalms, all right? So there's 150 of them. It's pretty sweet. And um, 
these are pieces of Hebrew poetry that deal with every sort of aspect of the human experience. Different emotions, different things that people deal with, the whole spectrum of human life. And these are not just ancient poems that are locked in the past, that are from, you know, 1400 you know, BC or whatever. We're not looking at something that is so distant from us that it can't speak to us today because we believe here that uh, the Bible is the word of God and God spoke uh, those things in that time and he continues to speak through his word today. So as we look at these ancient, as this, this ancient poem, we're going to see something that God is going to say to us this morning as we look at the scriptures. So what I want to do is we're going to kind of read the whole psalm all at once, and then we're going to kind of go back through, and we're going to talk about how this psalm talks about the greatness of God in comparison to what we are as humans. So let's start. It starts with this. Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. I just want to camp here for one little second. Um, here's the thing when we're reading our Old Testament, whenever you come across the Lord's name in, in like the small caps like this, so it says, Lord, our Lord. When I like first read this and I was unaware of this fact, I was like, oh man, this seems a little bit redundant. Like, oh Lord, you're our Lord. <laughs> cool. My optometrist, he's my optometrist, right? <laughs> my wife, she's my wife and she's amazing, Right. Uh, really what we're looking at here, and when we see the word Lord in small caps, we're dealing with the name of God. So through kind of like a historical process, uh, basically what happens is when the Hebrew authors wrote the name of God out, the name of God is holy to the Hebrew people, right? It's so holy, in fact, that you can't really say and pronounce his name out loud. So what they would do is instead of putting the little vowels in as if you're going to pronounce it the way that we think that it probably was pronounced, Yahweh, okay? They would put in vowel pointing that would change kind of the way that you would read it, and it would remind the reader to instead say the word, the Hebrew word for Lord, Adonai, okay? So eventually that kind of got passed on down, and then it enters into our English translations as this phrase. So we see Lord in small caps, and that is your signal as the reader to say, oh, this is the name of God, Okay? So, this is not redundant. This is saying, Yahweh, you are our Lord. You are our boss. Okay? So, he says this. He says, Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. Through the lips of Children and infants, oh, this is a different translation. Let me look at this one. Okay, through the praise of children and infants, you have established a stronghold against your enemies to silence the foe and the avenger. When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is mankind that you're mindful of them? human beings that you care for them. You have made them a little lower than the angels and crowned them with glory and honor. You made them rulers over the works of your hands, put everything under their feet, all flocks and herds and the animals of the wilds, the birds in the sky and the fish in the sea and all that swim in the paths of the seas. Lord, our Lord, 
How majestic is your name in all the earth. This is a poem that's about the greatness of God. It seems like it's a lot about humanity, right? There's this, there's this piece of this that's talking a lot about humans and how we exist in the creation. And what's happening here is that the psalmist is operating out of this view. He's assuming the fact that in this grand scheme of things, God is the one who is the glorious one. God is the one who decides to place glory on others and place greatness in others. God is great, and in comparison to him, we are not, we're not him. God is great, and we're not him. That's kind of the main sort of thesis of this sermon this morning. God is great, and we are not him. Sometimes we need to be reminded of the fact that I am not God. I don't get to take control of everything in the world and in my life. So the psalmist starts with this phrase, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. This word name in Hebrew has an association with like reputation. So think about the English phrase, like I'm going to make a name for myself. That's kind of the idea. It's not just the physical, it's not just like the sound of God's name. It's his reputation that is great in all the earth. And then he goes on and he, he talks about how uh, he set his glory above the heavens. Like his greatness is so huge that he gets to put his glory even above the heavens, the sky that we see. It's pretty, a pretty high view of who God is from the psalmist here. And then he moves on. And he says, through the praise of children and infants, you have established a stronghold against your enemies to silence the foe and the avenger. Now think about this for a second. This is kind of an odd phrase. Like when I read this, I'm like, wait a minute. <laughs> the praise of children and infants are what's establishing this like stronghold kind of a thing. Aren't these two sort of opposites of the whole spectrum, right? Think about an infant and a child, right? This person is completely and utterly dependent on their parent to be able to survive, right? This is something that is small, dependent, and it's not necessarily expected to be the thing that, like, this, this child is going to defeat my enemies. Hooray, <laughs> you know, like, check it out. I mean, I don't, I, so I've met some toddlers, okay? I know maybe they could, do, they could do some wild stuff. But this is kind of like pointing to the fact that God has a tendency to use people that are, not necessarily the strongest, that are not the most famous, that are not the most uh, established in society, to do things that are completely unexpected. There are people and there are powers that are opposed to the good stuff that God wants to do in the world. There's enemies of God. And God has a habit of using unlikely people and unlikely means to 
defeat those enemies. So when I kind of think about some just various stories, this is a, this is a, a theme that comes throughout the whole Old Testament and then into the New Testament. So when we think about like Abraham and Sarah, for example, you think about Abraham and Sarah. Abraham himself, through his kind of story, as he was promised by God that he was going to have a child and that child was going to be the person through which God would make Abraham and his family into this great nation, right? Abraham was well beyond the age that he probably would have been able to, to like see this happen. Sarah was well beyond the age of childbearing. And yet God chose this unlikely couple to be able to be the ones that would bring blessing into the world in this way. Not only that, but Abraham himself actually uh, was not a very truthful person in a couple of cases in his life. And in fact, he placed Sarah into like mortal danger twice because he lied about the fact that she was his wife. (laughs) She's my sister. (laughs) Go ahead and take her. (laughs) I don't want you to kill me. And yet, God used him and Sarah. Think about Moses. Moses meets God in the desert, and God gives him and commissions him to go back into Egypt and to take his people out of slavery in Egypt. But when Moses met God, he had just like ran away because he had committed a murder. He killed an Egyptian person, hid him in the sand, and then ran away. God used Moses in a mighty way. I think about David. David was a skinny kid. He was the youngest of his brothers. Jesus Jesus is from David's line, his family line. David was not the most likely guy to have been used. I think about Paul in the New Testament. Paul, who starts his life as Saul, who is one of, if not the most prominent oppressor of Christians at the beginning of Jesus's, like the beginning of the church. Paul was going around and was trying to crush the church. And he meets Jesus, recognizes that God is the one who is great. He is not God, and he does not get to decide how God is going to interact with the world. And then he becomes a follower of Jesus, and then goes from the greatest oppressor to the church to the greatest evangelist to the Gentiles that the world has ever seen. How incredible is that? Who is ultimately responsible for this? Who is the one who actually creates the situations in which these things happen is God. It's God's power. It's God's glory. It's God's greatness that enables any of this to happen. And we have to recognize that relationship. God is great, and we're not him. Now, moving on, there's going to be a little bit of a shift in tone, because right now there's kind of this like triumphant, like, oh, yeah, God's going to crush his enemies with Baby's praises, cool, you know, like awesome, I love this. But then he moves on and the tone kind of shifts and it gets a little bit smaller, a little bit more reverent, a little bit more intimate even. 
So think about this. He says, when I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is mankind that you're mindful of them? Human beings that you care for them. Think about what the author is saying here. It's like, look at this, guys. God made each thing in these, the things that we can see up, up above, diligently, carefully. When I think about that phrase, like the work of your fingers, I think of something that's like intimate, right? It's, it's an intimate knowledge that is God using this like small piece to create something that's beautiful and intricate. I think of people who like make jewelry for a living, right? There's this like very small, intricate understanding of whatever this object is. And it, it takes skill and it takes care. And I think that that is kind of the tone that we're going with here. But he's like, look at, look at this, the moon and the stars. I mean, they're so big. There's so many of them. Wh who am I? I'm just a speck. When I, uh, when I was a kid, I had a little bit of a fascination with, like, astronomy. I was, like, my whole room was, like, NASA-themed, and I had, like, the stars and planets, and I had, like, the, you know, those little glow-in-the-dark, like, sticky things with that horrible blue tacky stuff? And I would, like, stick them all over my ceiling, and I'm sure my parents loved that. And uh, I was, like, super into it. And my, I remember my grandfather on my dad's side, he kind of had this, this fascination, too. And he, he was, like, a collector of stuff, and he had these, this big telescope, and one day... I went out into his backyard, and he was like, hey, I've, I've got the telescope aimed. We're going we're gonna to check this thing out. And so I looked into it, and he had it aimed, like, right at Saturn. And I could see all the rings. And I was like, this is incredible. This is so cool. Right? And then later on in, in high school, my family, we, uh, we leased, we had, like, a timeshare of this cabin that was way out on the Alsea River, like, between, like, Corvallis and Walport. And uh, we would drive out there, you know, maybe once a month or so and just spend like a weekend out there. And so we drive out there. It was a long drive. And uh, we, we, there was no internet, which I guess was a necessary evil. And uh, we, there was no cell service. There, like the cabin barely had running water. It was like, it was, it was kind of, we were roughing it, so to speak, all right? So we went out there it, often. And I remember one of the first weekends that we were out there, there was this back porch deck thing. And it was like this A-frame cabin. And you walk out the door, and you're on this big back deck. And it was nighttime. And we're, we're, we're way outside of the city. You know, we're outside of the city lights. It was a beautiful, clear summer night. And I looked up into the sky, and it was breathtaking. I don't think that, like, I had seen that many stars ever in my life. And I remember very clearly in that moment, looking up at the sky and thinking, man, I am really small. <laughs> I'm a small speck on a speck. What's mind-blowing to me is that the author of Psalm 8, David, okay, when he looked up into the sky at night, he was operating out of kind of an ancient Near Eastern understanding of astronomy, he knew that there were stars and planets and all this kind of stuff out there. But in, in the ancient Near Eastern mind, 
the earth was over sort of like, um, there was a dome, a solid dome over the earth. And in that dome, God had set these little stars and planets and all these kinds of stuff. And so when he looks at it, he's like, oh man, this thing is so big. Now, a couple of millennia later, all right, we recognize uh, that space is way, way, way bigger than David even had an idea of. So we have this invention that's incredible, right? It's called the Webb Space Telescope. Have you heard of this? Uh, <laughs> it's been in the news recently. It's about a year old now. Um, and one of the first things that Webb did was it did what was called like a deep field image. Uh, and so it took an image that looked a little bit like this, okay? It's a little bit hard to see in the, you know, it's a little smudgy maybe. Uh, so we can do the CSI like zoom and enhance. So that's what we'll do like this. Okay, cool. Now... These like curvy things that have something to do with like, they call it gravitational lensing. Like basically the, the galaxies are so big and massive that they bend light around them, which is why we see these curves and stuff. The point is this. These are not what we see on here. These are not just stars. These are entire galaxies full, each of them with billions of stars that are billions of light years away from us. How crazy is that? They're not just stars. They're clusters of stars. And on top of that, there's thousands of them in this photo alone. And the amount of sky that this covers is the equivalent as if I took, I went to the beach and I grabbed a grain of sand and I held it at arm's length and the amount of sky that that grain of sand covers up is what we're seeing here. We are small. God is big. God is great. Our universe is enormous. And the question is, and the question on the mind of the psalmist is, what does that make us? Like, we're a speck on a speck on a speck in the vastness of an ever-expanding universe. How crazy is that? And yet, God cares for us. If we were to just stop here and say, all right, that's enough. I feel like that would be, that would be enough, right? God is God. We're not. Okay, let's move on. But... There's this moment in this psalm, and it says the word yet. And in the, um, in the Hebrew, we, we have this word yet. In, basically, but <laughs> you have made them a little lower than the angels, and you've crowned them with glory and honor. You've done something amazing to humanity. The, the, he's talking about sort of this paradox that human beings are, right? Humans are simultaneously a speck on a speck on a speck on a speck. We're so small and insignificant. And yet, we've been given glory and honor. We've been given an amazing calling. We have immeasurable value and worth. Yes, we're small. Yet, God cares for us and thinks about us. But all of this happens because of what God has done. We don't get to just be great in and of ourselves. We're only great because God makes it so. And 
God is great and we are not him. We need to let God be God and we need to recognize our place in the world. The fact that God has given us purpose means that we don't have to be the ones that control our own destiny. We're free from the pressure to take control. We're free from the pressure to be the kind of people that like, are the masters of our fate or the creators of our own identity or the creators of our own meaning and value. I don't have to create my own meaning. I'm free from that reality. I get to live into the freedom of not being my own God when I believe that God is great and I'm not him. I don't have to be him. We've been given that purpose. He moves on and he says in verse 6, You've made humans rulers over the works of your hands. You put everything under their feet, all flocks and herds, animals in the wild, birds in the sky, the fish in the sea, everything that swims in the path of the seas. Now this seems like, oh man, this is pretty authoritative, right? Like we've got, like, we've got all of this power, right? We've got dominion. We've got rule. And I think that this word rulers, if we go back a couple slides here, this word rulers, I think maybe sometimes we want to like, like, this feels a little bit like power trippy, you know, or the rulers. And I think the idea is a little bit more about like responsibility. We have responsibility to care for creation. We, have, we are representatives of God on, on the earth, but we're not him. This kind of goes back to the creation account in Genesis. God makes human beings in his image. And then he tells them, go, be fruitful, multiply, subdue the earth, have responsibility over the world. Do something good. And when he did that, and he looked at all the stuff, and he had put humans in that place of like, look, guys, I am up here, I'm the big boss, but you're going to be the people that are like helping make this thing happen, right? You're going to be, you have responsibility here. He called it very good. But the original lie was that we could be something that was beyond ourselves. We could take control. We would forget maybe that God was so great and we're not him. And instead we tried to be like God. We wanted that knowledge. We wanted that power. We're like, well, God, maybe, not. He, maybe he's not so great. Maybe he's holding out on us about something. Maybe we really should eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil because I'm not content with knowing that God knows the difference between all these things and he knows the beginning from the end and I don't and I really want to know the beginning from the end and don't you think that that would be awesome? That would be super great and so we went for it, right? And we became our own gods to the disaster of everything in the created order. <laughs> we tried to go beyond our humanity. We tried to take back some of the greatness for ourselves. And let's be honest, we see this original lie playing out all over the place, right? We like, humans have done some really awesome stuff, right? We've done some great things. 
You know, there's like amazing art in the world and music. We've created hospitals and schools and cures for diseases. And the wheel is pretty great. Yeah, you know, like I kind of like that. Um, I'm a big fan of pizza. I'm glad that we made that, right? That's a good thing. We've walked on the surface of the moon. Like humans have done some pretty awesome things, right? But as we've done those things, we also time and time again give into that original lie. I can be like God. I can be more like God. I can do these things. Started in the garden, went on and it moved to the Tower of Babel. We're going to build a big old tower. We're going to be like the gods. We're going to make this whole thing happen. I'm going to be able to reach my way up to heaven. It's going to be super, super great. And I don't need to have the limitations that are placed on me as a human. I don't need to recognize that God is God and I'm not him. God's great and I'm not the one who gets to have his power. And that ended in disaster. <laughs> we have all these different miscommunications and language problems and all that stuff as a, as a result. You don't have to go very far to see how we've sort of failed in this mission in many ways, right? If you turn on your TV for long enough, or you scroll through your newsfeed, you'll see it. You walk out your front door, you see this. You're confronted by war, violence, destruction, destroying the environment that we have like been given dominion over. We've hunted species to extinction. We're, we've created weapons that have, have the capability of killing every single person on this planet. Not to mention that things like this, we use our power and we amass our little kingdoms for ourselves to the detriment of others. We take advantage of people. We turn human beings into objects that then we can use for our own personal gratification. We use the power that we have or we promote systems that dehumanize other people and keep others down and remove the dignity of our fellow humans. We've failed in a lot of ways and we, we do this because we stop believing and trusting that God gets to be God and we don't get to be him. We don't get to do this. When we take power and when we think I'm super great and I don't need God, disaster follows. Always. There is some good news in all of this. There's some good news in the fact that God is great and we're not him. And that is this. Jesus has succeeded where we have failed. So if we look at the book of Hebrews... The author of Hebrews says this, and he actually quotes this psalm. There's a place where someone has testified. Notice, first of all, if you're not able to quote chapter and verse for every single Bible verse you've memorized, I think you're in good company, because the author of Hebrews is not there. There's a place somewhere where somebody said, okay, I think we can, we can you know, take, you know, take, take a little bit of, uh, take some of that pressure off, Okay. There's a place where someone has testified, what is mankind that you're mindful of them? Son of man, that you care for him. You made them a little lower than the angels. You crowned them with glory and honor. You put everything under their feet. Oh, yeah, this sounds a lot like our psalm, right? In putting, thing, everything, in putting everything under them, humans, God left nothing that's not subject to them. Yet, at present, we don't see everything subject to them. In other words, there's a problem, right? We see the brokenness. We see the places where we recognize we, we fail to recognize that God is God and we're not him. 
okay? We see the ways that this plays out in our lives, trying to take control of stuff, trying to be the people that make everything happen. But we do see Jesus, who was made lower than the angels for a little while and is now crowned with glory and honor because he suffered death so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. What we see in Jesus is a person who never forgot the fact that God is great. Now, Jesus had a little bit of advantage because Jesus is God, okay? So there's like this kind of a thing. But what we see in Jesus is someone who never forgot that God is great. Jesus paved the way for a new humanity to move forward with Jesus at the forefront. He's the one who gets to kind of pioneer this path forward, remembering that God is great and we don't have to be the ones that are in control. We are free from that. Jesus was what humans were always supposed to have been. He was the humanist human, <laughs> whoever was a human. Pretty awesome. He came with justice and with mercy and with the promise of new life, with healing, with goodness, with flourishing, with shalom, that wholeness. And he didn't just come to fix all the problems and then leave. Peace out. Later, guys. <laughs> no. In his life and his death and his resurrection, Jesus came and created a people, the church, who would be empowered by the Holy Spirit to live in the world in this way. This is not a natural thing for humans to do, to remember that we don't get to be the ones that are always in control. Because there's a bent in our soul. We're kind of bent toward trying to keep everything in line and being the masters of our own fate and being the ones who have to make it all happen. We're bent towards that. This is something that requires a work of the Spirit in us, and we have to be sensitive to that movement as he kind of redirects us and says, actually, no, look at God. Isn't he great? <laughs> look at the stuff that he has made. Did you make that? No. I think of... Uh, at the end of the book of Job, when God finally appears and he tells Job what's, what's going on, okay? And he, t he says to Job, Job, were you there when I laid the foundations of the, of the world? No, you weren't. Do you know the, the, the length and the breadth of the whole world? You, you must, because you're asking all, you're trying to like figure all this stuff out. You need to let me just be me. And you need to be you as a human being. It kind of seems like, it reminds me a little bit of like, like a conversation between like a father and a child. Where the child's asking their father like, what, what's, like why is this this way? Why do we do things this way? What is going on here? And the father knowing that, okay, there's a bunch of reasons for all of this. But right now, my child's view is this big, Right? And in order for them to understand, they, it needs to be this big. So I'm going to give them this. And I'm going to say, hey, you need, to let, you need to trust me. You need to let me be me. Because you don't quite know what the whole picture is. We don't know the whole picture. God does. 
We don't have it all figured out. God knows what he's doing. We are small. We have immense value and worth, but we are small. And God is great. And we are not him. We don't, we're responsible for the world, but we don't get to replace the one who's ultimately responsible. So God is great, and we're not him. Now, sitting here, I think for some people, that phrase probably brings a tremendous amount of like relief. Like, oh, thank goodness, I don't have to do this. <laughs> like, I don't have to be God. Hooray, right? This is awesome. And that's great. I think that's kind of what the intent is. The intent when I say something like this is, God is great, we're not him. There's freedom in that. We get to have the relief of not having to have the pressure of creating all that stuff for ourselves. For others, that might be a kind of a painful reality that you need to come to terms with. That's what it looks like to be in process. This is, what, this is part of what it looks like to be in process as a follower of Jesus. And I would invite you, if you're in that place, to consider the notion that you're not responsible to create your own meaning, to forge your own destiny. You're not under all of the pressure to create your own identity. You've been given one in Jesus. And you're free to give over that responsibility to the one who never fails, who never tires, who never gives up, who never decides, ah, I'm done. I'm done with this person. I'm done with this life. I'm done with this people. I'm out. God does not give up. When we do these things, when we live into that freedom, we acknowledge that God is great. We're not him. But we get to point to him. It's like me, you know, it's like I'm taking myself off out of center stage and I'm going to point to the person who really should be in the middle of everything. And that is something that I think people are a little bit more attracted to. <laughs> and I think that people need. When we do these things, we can actually say, Oh Lord, our Lord, your name is majestic in all the earth. God is great. We're not him. There's freedom in that. Let's pray.